Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is a, you know, the, the next book of the New Testament that we're going to go through on Sunday mornings. And there are a lot of challenging themes in 1 Corinthians. It's very often used as a reference book to deal with problems and questions. In other words, what do we believe about the resurrection? Well, we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15 to see that. What do we believe about church discipline? Well, we turn to the middle of the book. What do we believe about order in the church? You know, we turn to the middle end of the book. Where do we, what do we believe about love and fellowship in the church? Well, that's in chapter 13. What do we think about spiritual gifts? That's in chapter 12. What do we know about divorce and remarriage? Well, that's in there too. What do we know about eternal reward and how we should live? That's in there too. But you know, very rarely does a Bible study take it upon themselves to open the book and teach verse by verse through the whole thing. And I think that those two things are related. It's not a coincidence that the book that we use so often for reference for questions is not necessarily the book that we teach through verse by verse because questions can be difficult and we can have disagreements about them. So while it's great to have a reference book to go through, it can be challenging to go through difficult things week by week, week by week. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, however, my, my purpose in doing it is really to address the spiritual health of our, of our members. Now, if you're not a member of our church, if you are, are simply visiting with us, uh, then I want you to know you're going to get a lot out of the study for however long you come. We're still going to teach God's Word. But as a pastor, uh, I've gone to this book with uh, the purpose of reflecting on the spiritual health of those of you who I know or like to think that I know a little bit and who know me and who have served together with me in the church for a long time now. And that's what this letter is about, the spiritual health of the church in Corinth. Uh, Paul cared about the church in Corinth. He started it. He, he went there. He evangelized. He worked. And he got a letter, uh, an official letter from the church probably asking about some questions, but he also got some personal correspondence from people that he knew in the area. And there were questions. There were concerns. Some of the things raised were pretty alarming, what was happening in the church. Some of them were just disputes and uncertainties. And we're going to see one of these alarming things this morning. I want to start by reading in verse 1. Uh, we're just going to read the first nine verses, which we've already covered. We won't go back through them. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And Sosthenes, our brother... To the church of God who is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, an interesting exercise through these verses, by the way, would just be to underline a circle every time we have those three names to depict Jesus. Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, His name, Christ, Messiah, Lord, meaning Master or King. And you'll see it over and over again here for a purpose, which we will come to this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and there be no division among you. And we'll pause there. So, Three things that we discussed last week. Number one, emphasized in the first part, you were called by God. You were called by God. You did not wake up one day and decide that you were going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, become a Christian, and turn things around. You did not rise above your condition of spiritual sickness, of sin, of perpetual sin of condemnation that would ultimately lead to eternal hell. You didn't rise above that. You were called out of that life. Whatever experience, salvation-wise, you went through, it may have seemed as if you were making decision A, B, C, D, and you probably were, but that was the sovereignty of God working by grace in your life. It is grace when a sinner sees that Jesus Christ is their Savior, believes upon Him and repents and follows Him. It is the work of God. It is accompanied by the response of the individual, but it is the work of God or else no one would respond. And that may seem like a small distinction, but it's really important. Otherwise, you have some reason to brag and boast before other people. Because they heard a message of salvation and they chose not to do anything with it. But when you heard the message of salvation, you did the right thing. And that would be something to be proud of. Something to be satisfied with. An accomplishment to speak of. That they chose poorly and you chose wisely. But Paul, to set the stage for all the instruction in Corinth, wants to make it clear. God called you to this relationship with him. Our approach then to God should be humility and gratitude, a willingness and eagerness to serve, an excitement of the privilege of entering into his family. These are the sort of fundamental approaches to Jesus that a Christian has to have in order to grow spiritually, in order to mature spiritually. It can't be, look what I'm doing, and look what I've done, and look where I am, and I've risen above, and those fools didn't. So Paul levels the field. You were called by God. Um, In verse 3, we see the greeting, grace and peace. That emphasizes the calling. Grace is something that God's given you, something you didn't deserve, something you didn't merit, something, it's not a payment. It's not God giving you a wage for all of your good work or for who you are. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the acronym. That's one of the only ones I know, Steve. So Steve is our chief acronym officer here at the church. But, but that's the one that I've got. God's riches at Christ's expense. Not God's riches paid out to those who've earned them. Grace meaning Jesus Christ died for you while you were yet a sinner meaning Jesus Christ gave his life for you, counted you as something worthy, someone to save, when there was nothing worthy or meritorious about you, in all of our cases, before we were even born. Grace from God delivered to us by Jesus, and peace. And last week we mentioned Christmas time it being relevant, 
that the angels show up saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What does that mean? Does it mean men are going to have peace amongst themselves? Is that what you see when you look at the world around you? Everyone living in perfect harmony? It's not what it means. It's not what the angels are proclaiming. On earth peace from God. Angels are messengers from God. This Savior that was being born in Bethlehem was God's extension of salvation that would bring people into a peaceful relationship with Him. And rather than meet God as your judge, as your adversary, after living a life in sinful rebellion against Him, now you may meet God as a Father who gives you an inheritance, who has given His life to bring you into His family. So that's the greeting, the very Christian greeting that Paul uses in the introduction of his letters. You were called by God. You didn't merit this. So grace and peace to you. Not from Paul. <laughs> That's how we write letters. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Christian blessing. And if that's not good enough for you, then you're in the wrong crowd. If you want something else, you're in the wrong crowd. If you require earthly prosperity, you're in the wrong group. If you require some promise of I do ABC, then you know XYZ happens, you're in the wrong crowd. If you want fire insurance so that your house doesn't crowd, health insurance so that your kids won't die. If you want health insurance so that you won't get sick, you're in the wrong crowd. What is offered to the Christian, what is promised to the Christian, is grace and peace from God. Peace with God. That's the promise. And so that's emphasized in the introduction. And then finally, this becomes the, the third launching point from which we, we really go into the letter. And it's a tough letter. But here's the launching point. Verse 5. They were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and knowledge. Now, utterance is a strange word. I don't like the translation, to be honest with you, the English translation. The word is logos. That's the word. And it's the same word used all throughout the New Testament for speech or word or language. In other words, you have been enriched by the Lord in all speech and knowledge. And if within a church body there has been an enrichment through the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that people know God and know His Word and are blessed with those who can speak the truth of God's Word and speak concerning this knowledge of God, then that church in that place has everything that they need to grow to spiritual maturity. That doesn't mean that they have grown to spiritual maturity. And it doesn't mean that they will grow to spiritual maturity. But it means that God has not withheld from them anything required for their life and godliness. If He has granted them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a right knowledge and understanding of Him, if He has granted them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, teachers and preachers to instruct in a right understanding of Him, then they have all that they need for spiritual maturity in life and godliness. And Paul says right here, they have it in Corinth. And yet, chapter after chapter will be a testimony to the fact that although they had what they needed, 
They were not spiritually mature. In fact, he just comes right out and says it at one point. There are problems. And the problems were not the speakers or the knowledge. The problem was the church and their response to the revelation of God and His Word. So that's our launching point, and now we get to the first problem. Verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. This I would like to call an impossible plea. An impossible thing to ask. He says, I plead with you, brothers. And when Paul, you know, he doesn't say, I command. This is an earnest approach to trying to make a sincere request of the people to do something that he knows will be incredibly difficult for them. That's why you plea. You ever have a child, a teenager, doing something in their life that you know is destructive and that you know is going to hurt them and you know they're doing it for a reason, they want to be doing it, and you go and you talk to them about it and what you're really doing, because you're not saying anything they haven't heard before, what you're really doing is you're pleading with them to listen and to change. That's what you're doing. It's not like they've never heard, you know, don't go out and get drunk on the weekends. It's not like they've never heard that. It's not like they've never heard, hey, you shouldn't be living your life like this. But you go and you have the conversation with them anyway because you are pleading with them for their own sake, for their own health, for their own life, not to do what they're doing. You you can relate to that, right? That's what Paul means when he says here, Now I plead with you, brethren. You plead when you realize something is very dangerous and yet something is not going to be easy to correct. And in this case, what he's dealing with is divisions that he's heard about within the church. And let's just be honest. It's not very often that when there are a lot of divisions and factions inside local churches that things improve and get better without people leaving, is it? It doesn't happen very often. Not anywhere. Paul is pleading for it to happen here in Corinth. He's calling upon, as we'll see, these people's faith in Jesus to be stronger than whatever lines in the sand they've drawn whatever relationship barriers exist I plead with you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ not by Paul's name by the name of your master that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you this is the language but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and judgment that phrase perfectly joined together It sounds like 
you got a whole bunch of people from all over the place, and now they need to come together. That's what it kind of sounds like, right? Be perfectly joined together. That's not what it means. The word is an idea of restoring. In fact, in the Gospels, this word is the word that they use to talk about fishermen's, fishermen who mend their nets. What he's really calling on them to do is to repair where divisions have taken place. You need to go out fishing with a net and you use it long enough and things start to break. Knots start to come undone. Stuff starts to fray. And if you're going to be a successful fisherman, you got to take some time and do some maintenance. And you have to put these things back together. You have to perfectly join, that's the language here, the net back together as it was in the beginning. That's what he's calling on them to do. Because when they placed faith in Jesus Christ and they entered the church, they were joined. But sin, selfishness, perhaps personal ambition, things have gotten in the way to cause factions and fraying within the church. And he is pleading with them by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to put this back together. When he says the same mind and the same judgment, he doesn't mean that everyone loves everything about every person. That's not unity. That's impossible, okay? He doesn't mean we need the kind of unity that disregards Christian freedom so that the only way we're going to get along with each other is if every person in the church agrees on what they should do with their children. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean the only way we're going to get along in the church is if everyone is so legalistic about the way they should live their lives that we all agree to the same laws and principles for all the aspects of our well-being. That's not what he means. But when it comes to how we view the scriptures and how we view the church and how we view the Lord, we have to be of the same mind. And in that same mind, when it comes to the church, we are going to render the same judgments. That's what this verse means. We need to be of one accord with what the Bible says. And when it comes to functioning in the church, our judgments then should be the same. Now, this may seem very ambiguous. In other words, you kind of ask, well, what judgments is he talking about? What sorts of things do we have to agree on? And I will remind you, this is chapter 1. All that stuff is coming, okay? But in chapter 1, before he deals with all the things that we need to see, he begins by saying, unity in the body of Christ is important because in a church, we need agreement, and we need agreement in judgment, in execution. Does that make sense? Now, what was the source of difficulty here? Verse 11, For it has been declared to me, Concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, I don't know Chloe, we'll just leave it, leave it at that, that there are contentions among you, and I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that's Peter, or I am of Christ. So what he has heard is more than he has written. Let's start with that. 
Whatever was the fundamental lines in the sand that caused these people to take different sides, we don't know what it is. Now, I'll tell you, there have been endless pages of commentaries written of people trying to figure out what the different divisions were here. Let me save you and spare you. The Bible doesn't tell us. Paul doesn't tell us. In this letter to the church, he doesn't dive into every little dispute of faction among those who said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paul. Maybe it was as simple as they liked him as teachers. I don't know. But it was more than just they liked them as teachers in that they begin to self-identify as disciples of these individuals, followers of these people. This is uh, rife with warnings for us. Uh, here's one warning. In our culture, uh, celebrity pastors and theologians and celebrity authors and speakers are, are very much the rage. Um, I want to be careful because I am preaching from a John MacArthur study Bible. Okay, we've given these out. All right? So I am not telling you not to take advantage of good Bible teachers who have faithfully divided the word of truth and have worked to help the body of Christ at large. That's not a warning about that. But John MacArthur doesn't know you. If he does, speak to me after the service. I'd like to connect. <laughs> and you don't know him. You've never seen him at a ball game with his kids. You don't know how he acts when something doesn't go the right way in his church. You've never seen him sit down with somebody who disagrees with him and work it out behind closed doors. You don't know John MacArthur. He doesn't know you. Is there value in what he's written and published? I think so. I think so. But this idea that, well, you know, I'm a... A MacArthurite. I, I'm just John MacArthur, and everything that John MacArthur says is pretty much, you know, you know, the gold standard for Christianity, and on and on and on. That stuff is all nonsense. And you know, I could live with the nonsense if if the bar was John MacArthur, but it's not, because it turns out the skill set that you need to promote yourself and to be one of these celebrity figures does not exactly align with the skill set that God's word upholds as the standards for pastors and teachers. It's a very different skill set. This might not surprise you if you know a little about God's word, but the Bible doesn't exactly commend self-promotion. You need to be careful because there can be factions and divisions that come from following all these different voices and reading all these different books and watching all these different videos and, and then you bring that stuff into the body of Christ you're like, oh, I really like this guy, I really like this girl, I really like this, I really watch this, I go to this website, I do this, blah, 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 blah. And there's all this division. Folks, there is one Lord and Savior who paid for your soul. There is one Master who resides over this body and he has given you whom he has given you, and it is enough for life and godliness. And you better be careful before we start to break up into little groups all over the place following these different crowds. Sometimes we get into stretches here where it's all I can do to keep up with all the different... You say, well, why? Why should you care? And I'll tell you what, that is a real burden for me as a pastor. 
You say, well, why? Why should you care? Well, I'll tell you why I should care. I'm the one supposed to be responsible for keeping watch over your soul. That's a pastor. And routinely, I'm getting names thrown at me from all over the place I've never heard of in my life. I mean, I could spend weeks Google searching all the different books, teachers, videos, and stuff that you guys are all watching. And I'm not telling you not to watch it. I'm telling you, you need to be really careful. And, and in this modern age, as a pastor who's trying to keep watch over your soul, that's about the best I can do. You need to be careful because the skill set to make yourself famous does not go hand in hand with the skill set of godliness most of the time. And the compromises that it takes to self-promote often do not go hand in hand with what the Bible teaches and there are people that fall victim to this. And these teachers are often very tricky. Now they fall all the time. All the time they fall. I could give you half a dozen names off the top of my head within the last five years. And you want to know the real scary part? Here's the real scary part of it. The majority of the half a dozen names that I would give you are people who I thought their theology and teaching was pretty solid. But I don't know those guys. I'm your pastor. Steve's your pastor. Justin, Nathan. You know who your teachers are. You see me with all my warts. There's a lot of them. Hey, this spot right here, I can't get to go away. Showing Alice in the mirror. But you see my life. You know how messed up I am. Right? Those of you who are members of this church, I'm not perfect. I mess things up all the time. But I love the Lord. I believe in his word. My teaching isn't dictated on all my personal thoughts. I stand up and this is what I'm trying to do. And I care about you. Celebrity pastors. Here's another warning. Even in the local church, people can start following a man and a pastor. I've seen this happen. Here they are. They're part of the body of Christ. They've committed to the body of Christ. They've joined a church in the body of Christ. They've committed to serving and to loving the Lord and to working in the body of Christ. And one pastor leaves and they're gone. Who are they really committed to? The body of Christ or that pastor? Here's another one. Some people set pastors up in their lives as like their personal mentors, their, their Yodas, their, 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 yeah, you're laughing, but you know what I'm saying is true. Some people, oh, I have to go to my pastor. My pastor is everything. That's a bunch of nonsense. Pastor is there to help you divide the word of truth, to give counsel where it's needed, to be a resource for you, to shepherd your life. I don't have all the answers for your life. But you know what I run across more in the modern day church is instead of people saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ, I run across more people saying, no, I am of Reggie. <laughs> yeah. I'm of Justin, meaning Justin saying that. We are a very individualistic society. And for some of us, the mere thought of acknowledging Christian unity and Christian community and a serious commitment to us just rubs us the wrong way. 
because we are so individualistic. It's all about me, and it's all about my family, and it's all about my friends. It's not about the community. It's not about the others. It's not about the people. And I'll show up if I'm getting something out of it. And what I get out of it is what I think I should get out of it. Not necessarily what was said. And I'll respond how I think I should respond. It's all about me. James stood up. It's going to be 100 pounds this morning that we're going to have men's Bible study tonight. I'm just going to be 100% honest with you. I don't think that I need to go to men's Bible study to learn how to be a godly husband and father right now. I don't. I'm not saying there's no value in it for me. I'm saying I am not attending men's Bible study on Sunday night because I don't know how to discipline my children or I don't know how to handle finances or I don't know how to love my wife. So I guess I don't need to go. Right? I don't attend Wednesday nights because I don't know what those prophets say. I've never been through the book of Daniel. I really need to touch up on the narrative of the Bible. That's not why I go. That's not even why I think about going. I ask myself, what does the body of Christ need? And I think that the body of Christ needs faithful men who will show up for Bible study. And so I go. And I am usually tired because I may look like a specimen of physical fitness, but standing up here for an hour on Sunday mornings after preparing and getting ready the day before and waking up early to review and get ready and then talking for an hour in high school, Sunday school class and talking for, I know you wish it was only 20 minutes, but it usually ends up being closer to 45. I am tired. And someday, I hope real soon, by the way, Nathan is going to get me singing again, and I'm going to be even more tired, and I do not want to go. I want to stay home, and especially during football season, and I want to watch the football games, and I want to cheer for my fantasy football team and relax. All the flesh is saying, you are going to work tomorrow. Relax. Recover. What? does the body of Christ need? Because I am not of Reggie, and I don't show up at the Bible study because I'm of Steve. I am of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And he is the master of this body. And I have committed to this body. So I will be here. Because one of these Sunday nights, somebody's going to be there who needs my perspective on what's being talked about. One of these Sunday nights, my son is going to need something. And you need to be there to give it to him. And the idea that you're just going to magically show up that one time when it's needed is ridiculous. There cannot be divisions in the body of Christ, either selfishness or following other people or following men. It has to be about Jesus. And we do what we do because we love Jesus and we serve Jesus. Not ourselves, not Steve, not Justin, not me, not Nathan, not your favorite teacher. It has to be about what the Lord wants. And these people had knowledge and teaching. That's what we found out. Chapter 1, verse 5. They had right speech. They had good teaching, good knowledge. And they weren't getting there. Because it was about the wrong things. 
Verse 13. This is what I, this, when I said it has to be about Jesus, here it is. Is Christ divided? What's Paul say? You've got these divisions. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Cephas. Is Jesus divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Um, for Christmas, I, I know I've said this a lot to a lot of people, but I, I've got a, a wrinkle on it. For Christmas, I got my wife a good gift this year, and it's usually hit and miss. My kids can tell you, my wife is a wonderful woman and not very good at all at disguising disappointment. Uh, it's not her fault. She's too honest. That's, that's the reality. I wish she's not a very good actor. If she was a better actor, then I would be able to survive with lousy gifts. But this year, I did a good job, okay? I, I paid a service to get all these cassettes that, uh, that you know, we took at the time and other people took at the time, and now we don't have anything that can play those things, to get those digitized. And there are videos from when our kids were little... We, we did not exactly have a lot of money when we got married. I know none of you can relate to that. So our wedding video was James. James recorded our wedding video, and he was kind, and he did it, and he put it on a cassette. And I didn't have anything that could play that cassette. We had never seen it. We'd never seen it. So we had all that stuff, and you know, and, and, but mostly what we had, because, again, you probably can't relate to this either, we took a whole bunch of videos on these little mini DV things. We never labeled any of those suckers. We had no idea what was on those things. So I put them on, you know, and all of a sudden it was like Christmas for all of us. What's on this video? There are some strange transitions from video to video and what came back, by the way. Uh, we went from a very spiritual moment in, our, in the lives of our little children immediately to bath time. And my son is going like this up on the, on the screen. So uh, I got to be careful with who's over when we're playing those things. But on one of the videos, one of the videos... There uh, was uh, my mom and Tammy uh, sitting here, and three- and four-year-olds lined up right there on the stage, and they're going to sing two songs. And you know, there's an Avery Rutan in that, in that video, and there's a, a Macy Manlove in that video, and a Hallie, and, a, and a Ethan and a Lauren are in that video. And, a, and there's just this... this Slew of little three- and four-year-olds at the time. And I bring it up because they were singing as three- and four-year-olds, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they sang, I stood right here, only Jesus. And, and they're doing these motions, and it's cute. And boy, Ethan stood right here. And at the end of every one, he went... And thou shalt be saved. Like this. It, was, it was great. He's in a full suit and tie. He doesn't dress that well ever, you know, these days. But back then, he was looking sharp. And Lauren hasn't changed either. She just sat there very quietly singing the songs, you know. Avery and Hallie were very expressive. But what do you teach three- and four-year-olds? You teach them this is about Jesus. That's what you teach them. This is about Jesus. Jesus died for you, so you should serve him. Jesus loves you, so you should love others. This is not about yourself. This is about the people whom Jesus has saved. Jesus gave his life. That's what Paul's saying in verse 13. 
something as simple that three and four-year-olds can learn it. Something as complex that 40-year-olds can lose sight of it. If this becomes about you and what you get out of it, you're not spiritually healthy, brother or sister. You're sick. You're sick. And you need to face that sickness. A healthy Christian does not look at the church and the Bible studies and the fellowships and the ministries and say, what can I get out of it? Or what are my kids going to get out of it? What's my wife going to get out of it? A healthy Christian looks at all these things and says, what do they need out of this for me? What can I do? And I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm saying you're not healthy if that's the way you see it. And that sickness runs deep. And you need to deal with it. You need to face it down. Verse 14, you get Paul's response. I thank God that I baptized none of you. <laughs> Sounds like a frustrated parent, doesn't it? <laughs> now, I didn't have anything to do with this. <laughs> I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. What a ridiculous thing. You imagine me standing up in there and saying, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of Reggie. That's how ridiculous these factions were becoming. Not that they actually thought that. They didn't actually think that. That's why Paul's using this, because that sounds so ridiculous. That's just how they were living. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Besides, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. There are baptism wars all over the place. We get a little thing from the Southern Baptist Convention each year. How many people did you baptize? How many people did you baptize? And that didn't start from any kind of bad motivation. I don't think it continues with any bad motivation. They're trying to, to have some measurement of the growth of the church. I understand. This is not about how many people I've baptized. It's about whether or not I'm being faithful with the gospel. And this is about whether you're being faithful with the gospel. Are you being faithful with the gospel? If you have a very self-centered Christianity, the gospel will not flow out of you. Because sharing the gospel will often put you in disadvantageous situations. Not advantageous ones. Certainly did that for Paul. If you are spiritually sick, so that this is all about you and yours, the gospel will not flow out of your life. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, it's really hard to share the gospel. It's really hard to share the gospel. It's really hard to share the gospel. That's fear talking. The gospel's not hard. It's so simple. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. 
you're going to die and you're going to face God and you can face him in judgment or you can face him as a son. You're going to die and you're going to have an account for your life. I've never met anyone who said that when they give an account for their life, God's not going to find anything wrong. The gospel's not hard because people know they're sinners. I may make them upset to think about it. And they don't like to talk about it. But in their hearts, we all know it's true. They may rationalize it away. But the gospel's simple because it is so right. You're a sinner. You do bad things. God is going to judge your life. Not by taking away your scholarship or kicking you out of your job. No, he's going to... Eternal hell is on the line. He's given you a life and you've used it to rebel against him. And he loves you and he's offered his son to save you. That's not a hard message. But if our soul is self-centered, then that's not going to flow out of us. The call in Corinth is to mend, to put back together, to go back to the unity that we have. You know, that's a great call to end for New Paris today. I don't know of big factions and divisions in our church. I don't. If I did, I'd speak to it. But I'm concerned about the same spiritual sickness that flows from that. A very individualistic approach. This is supposed to be about the Lord Jesus and his people. Our minds should be to unity and service. And this letter is going to keep pounding that home over and over and over again. You can say, well, I'm not sure I really see how you got that out of this passage here in chapter 1. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. If you want to read ahead, you'll see it. So let's pray now for health as we observe the Lord's Supper, which is supposed to be a testimony to unity. Father, we are unified by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are all members of the same covenant promise made to us that he purchased with his blood. We enter into the kingdom by the same way. Your word is equally applied to all of us, as will your judgment be. You have called us out of a life of destruction and into right fellowship with you. You have given us all that we need for life and godliness. And to this point, Father, you have sustained your church here in New Paris, though many other churches around us have flamed out. Father, faithfulness in years past is no promise when it comes to human beings of faithfulness in years forward. We need to be spiritually healthy. We need to be committed to you and your body. We need to love one another with devotion and take these sacraments that we observe together like the Lord's Supper seriously. Thank you now for the men who will serve. Bless our time together. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.